happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 262 for June the 15th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I haven't shaved for three days something like that, uh, because I'm on summer break, and it is lovely. And as <clears throat> a summer breaking teacher, I am delinquent in my duties to post our last episode. So I will assure those of you that are waiting with bated breath for the audio podcast version with show notes of episode 261 that it will be coming soon. Joining us and looking remarkably dry, given the amount of moisture that apparently is falling on the northern tier right now, or at least in Montana and Wyoming and Yellowstone and places like that. It's Dr. Jason Neifer, who also I don't think has shaved in the last couple of days, uh, but that's more of a norm for, for Jason. Because when you live in Montana, you know, haircuts are optional and, you know, beards are smiled upon even more than they are here in Oklahoma. And we love them here, I guess, in Oklahoma. So. It is true. Um, I do have uh, that kind of sort of mountain man look. And in fact, here in my flannel today with Glacier in a uh, Glacier National Park in the background, um, I'm obviously giving that motif off. But yes, I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in actually kind of sunny tonight, Missoula, which has not really been the case the last couple of weeks. It's been uh, dropping rain there, as I'm sure many of you have seen on uh, national headlines. And of course, all of our uh, well wishes and thoughts go out to people impacted by the incredible events that are happening around Yellowstone National Park um, in places like Gardner, Montana and Red Lodge, Montana. Um, of course, schools we serve are located in that area. We've been checking in on our peeps uh, in the region as well. But uh, ignoring that breaking news for a moment, Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, it's the time when I just kind of show up without doing any homework, and Jason works all week frantically to fill our Google Doc with lots of great news articles. Actually, I <clears throat> I usually contribute, but I was a you know I've been on vacation. Uh, well, actually, you have been too. You've been in Oregon. You were in a cool place last week. Yes. So we are here to talk about the technology news and to shoot it through the educational prism. And Peggy George is here with us live. And we're so glad Peggy for you to be able to join us. And we want to invite anyone <clears throat> who has this time block open, although it will be changing. Uh, actually I could now say in um, the month of August because, and I haven't even shared this on social media yet, Peggy might be excited to know we sold our house yesterday. So we are under contract it was only on the market like 74 days and <clears throat> we changed our realtor and it sold in three days. So anyway, we're going to be moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and, you know, Jason and I are, I'm sure, going to continue to share various and sundry personal items. But officially, we're here to talk about the technology news and especially how that relates to schools and education, but possibly also our personal lives. And we will try not to gush too much about Apple stuff, but, you know, sometimes it just happens. So, Dr. Neifer, thank you for, again, doing the yeoman's work with our links tonight. We have categories uh, tonight, including security, the tech correction, the ed tech correction, Google, Microsoft, Apple, software, and the infamous geek of the week. So we have a lot of tech correction, which we didn't get into a ton of last time. But where would you like to start, sir, uh, perhaps avoiding the 
rabbit hole of the tech correction for just a few moments, but I think we're going to fall into it tonight. I would yeah, guess. we definitely will fall into it tonight. Well, um, there's some uh, kind of standard Microsoft, Apple, Google news that I think all this stuff is interesting to talk about. Let's start with Google. Um, Kevin Topfold about Chromebooks uh, reported on June 9th, an interesting new feature headed into the direction um, Chrome, or I'm sorry, headed into the, 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 the interesting new feature headed to a Chrome operating system device near you. And that's a partial split screen uh, functionality. And right now in Windows 11, there is a uh, kind of a new way it does window management that kind of mimics some of the window manager uh, apps that I've used over time. But essentially what it allows you to do is take a window and instead of just putting it on one side or the other of your screen, you can actually split it in new and nuanced ways. So if you have a single screen, for example, and want to put a dock up on one side and a, a web page up on another, it's really easy to do that uh, now in, in Microsoft's Windows Manager. And apparently, um, Chrome will be headed in that direction, too, uh, starting in a future version of the, the operating system. And what I would say is that it's just becoming really obvious to me that there's a lot of time and attention going to making uh, the Chrome operating system a power operating system, one that, that has features that would be very attractive to um, obviously very net-connected but tech-savvy users. So I'm excited that it's headed um, in that direction. Um, and again, something that I uh, uh, actually install third-party uh, plugins for on things like the Mac operating system. Um, I'll, I'll comment on that to say um, there are some, some shortcuts that you can use, both keyboard shortcuts and then Windows clicking shortcuts on the Chromebook to split screen. <clears throat> One of the places we've needed to do that uh, has been creating narrated slideshow videos using Adobe Spark video, which actually is not Adobe Spark anymore. I keep on saying it. It is Adobe CC Express, Adobe Creative Cloud Express, uh, but just a fantastic tool. The one that I um, had my sixth graders do their culminating video projects in our conspiracy. It's actually called Fruit Loop Conspiracy Theories, but about the moon landings. One of the things that's challenging about it, though, and this is something to think about screen size wise, is like Adobe Creative Cloud Express, you can't compress the size of the window too much or it actually says, hey, you've got to make this bigger and it does not show you all of the tools. And so anyway, that was um, something I don't know how many people run into that, where my students had a script in Google Docs, they needed to read it and then they needed to record it over here. <clears throat> and the way that Adobe works um, with CC Express Video is you have to hold the mouse button down <clears throat> while you're recording. So anyway, this kind of of a uh, you know split screen uh, technology definitely has um, real applicability and need in uh, the educational context. But even before this, there have been some ways to do that. It does kind of vary. Um, it's also nice to have more than one screen, but you know that's not. The situation for a lot of our younger students, particularly maybe once kids are getting into to the upper middle school and high school, you know, they may they may have a phone. Um, that'll be something interesting to think about, too. But I, I don't know. It's I don't know how many people are doing that, you know, having scripts and things like that that they need to record. <clears throat> but I did have many students successfully do that with split screening on the Chrome OS. And it seems like this is going to <clears throat> make that experience even better. So that's great. Yep. And then related to that, other kind of updates in Google world, uh, there's really three of them. We can do these in, in kind of quick succession. Uh, first, 
uh, a 95 Google report on June 10th that the sharing uh, dialogue screen in Google uh, Drive, so any any drive that or any document you can share, has been updated to kind of improve um, uh, uh, improve uh, uh, the way you share documents. And of course, interesting to that is that it's really Google that created this concept, right? It was their enhancements to um, uh, what used to be called Writely, uh, an online word processor that they picked up and then made into Google Docs, uh, and then started adding a, a, a wide variety of enhancements. The shared dialogue screen has been very similar and, and, again, quite functional for some time, and they are adapting that to make it more user-friendly. Um, I noticed this before I saw the article, but I was sharing uh, documents the other day, so I know that this the screen is now in place. Um, but there is um, uh, more ways that you can access some of the advanced features, like making it only open to a certain domain or making it open to the public uh, uh, with or without sign-in. For example, if you're using inside of domain, those are all pieces that um, are easier to access now. So those are some interesting updates. Um, the Google Keep, according to Chrome Unbox today, uh, will start allowing you to uh, uh, change the size of your fonts. There's some long-term plans for Google Keep to finally utilize uh, uh, text formatting to make that particular service more useful. Right now, it's really uh, uh, best for quick jotted notes because you can't even uh, format the text right now. Um, uh, like including adding italics, underlines, bolds. That is uh, changing um, uh, uh, in the near future, and the, one of the first adaptations will be uh, to allow for different size fonts. And then also um, Google Drive has also announced that they are, are trying to put more functionality into the file manager inside of Google Drive. And one of the things that... Uh, you can do now is uh, could, like control copy or um, I, I guess it's called command copy on on the Mac. Control copy or command copy a file name and paste it elsewhere. Um, you can also uh, uh, press I think it's uh, shift or maybe it's a different uh, familiar key uh, or sh uh, no yeah it's it's control and shift and V to put a shortcut to that file somewhere else in your Google Drive. So again I feel like these are all power user uh, 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 typed commands that I think make this even that much more attractive to advanced users. And these kind of things are wonderful to not only learn about ourselves and practice, but share with teachers yeah. back to school, right? Uh, they're, they're always making different enhancements. And for those of us that are in Google schools, we spend a ton of time in Google Drive and Google Docs and, you know, in these tools. So these kinds of uh, little enhancements or techniques um, I, I think are, are, it's a perfect kind of thing to share in a back-to-school EdTech PD sort of situation. Absolutely. So uh, that's all the Google news. Um, I will do a quick Microsoft one, and there might be a couple of mini rabbit holes under Apple. I know that when you wind up, uh, 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 me and Wes, uh, we can sometimes go and go and go and go um, on Apple stuff. But one quick Microsoft note, uh, this was from the June 25th Verge. We've reported previously on this podcast that Microsoft was uh, uh, finally shutting down Internet Explorer um, and now it's, it's, uh, released an update that automatically redirects people that go to Internet Explorer to Microsoft Edge. And I believe they've also added a compatibility layer, uh, to Edge to make sure that it is, 
uh, going to be able to deal with some of the legacy things that were previously um, uh, Internet Explorer only. But Internet Explorer, Internet Explorer finally dead, um, uh, a long time coming, and now, I guess, long live Microsoft Edge. And the article says that future versions of their OSs will actually disable entirely Internet Explorer. So I think that's excellent um, because from a security standpoint, you you very much are putting yourself and others at risk when you are using a deprecated browser that is no longer secure and has many known vulnerabilities. But I think that may be unprecedented because we've never seen Apple do that. I don't know that we've ever seen a an operating system manufacturer um, disable their browser. So again, that's also a sign of the times with with Ed with Edge and the uh, integration of Chromium <clears throat> and um, you know, the fact that there's arguably less competition and, and actual choices in the web browser environment in terms of core engines and things like that as, as we had at one time in the past. Absolutely. And then here's some random Apple news. Um, I thought I would start up with the, the probably the, um, uh, the, the easiest things to, to talk about. Uh, first, the interesting uh, uh, announcement, 9 to 5 Mac, had yesterday that the next entry-level iPad is coming with a couple of features that to kind of give you a sense of the direction of Apple. Uh, the A14 chip, which is uh, a newer offering from Apple, very fast desktop-class chip. It will have 5G availability, which means they're going to put those pieces in there, and then also USB-C connectivity. Um, I uh, recently uh, helped my parents purchase uh, some entry-level iPads that were even a year or two old that we bought used versions on Swappa. Uh, and um, I felt like that both of them were very responsive platforms, like surprisingly responsive platforms that made it extremely easy uh, to, um, uh, 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 to utilize most apps, even some of the ones that seem to be more graphic intensive. Do you remember what generation you got? Because I actually uh, just ordered was, an iPad on Swappa today, too. Yeah, eighth generation. Oh, so, it was eighth. Okay, no, yeah. seventh generation, excuse me. Seventh, so yeah. Two generations yeah. back. Yeah, and no, that's what we got, too. We got we ordered a seventh, seventh Extremely gen. reasonably priced. Uh, uh, both of them um, uh, were, uh, or I'm sorry, both that we purchased were, were you know, obviously well, well below the retail price of a current generation, even entry-level iPad, um, but still very useful. Yeah, uh, I got a 128 gig, uh, 230 bucks. So yeah, that's a that's a good price. I mean, it, and shipping and taxes, so a little more. But uh, you know, I think you're aren't you looking at 500 for a new one, pretty much now? And that would be the I low. Think so yeah. yeah. The one thing I would say about the the availability of the 5G on there is that I. You know, I'm, I'm just recently back in iPad world the last uh, uh, two years um, and did end up upgrading to the newest iPad Air when it was released uh, uh, this past year. Uh, I guess it would have been earlier this year when I picked it up. But the thing that's super interesting about the um, that is that I love the 5G in there. And in fact, I pay it's an extra 15 or $20 a month uh, for a, a tablet SIM from T-Mobile as part of my larger uh, Internet plan. And what's uh, super fascinating about um, what's super fascinating about uh, the entry level one is that, especially um, you know, uh, if if I could update the the space to like two fifty six, would be pretty close to what I'd be looking for. 
Um, you know, that's, that's a very attractive iPad that, uh, yes, it may not have the, uh, the, you know, the super screen or, um, the M1 chip in it that, that, that my current generation Air does, but to have the 5G access in there and the USB-C, you know, it's a lot of advanced technology all packed into one. Um, I have another thought about uh, iPads and, and phones and USB-C, but uh, Peggy is commenting in the chat room that she spent the last few days participating in the Wakelet Community Week uh, and saw excellent sessions, and it was a 12-hour live stream. So if there's anyone up to the challenge of a long web, web-based web uh, professional development, it is Peggy George. So if you all don't use Wakelet, I know... I know a lot of people are big onto it. Carl Hooker was the one I think that first got me kind of connected. And I, I still kind of use Twitter as my place to, to save and share things and threads and stuff like that. Um, but Wakelet is a, is a great tool and we'll put a link in our show notes to the Wakelet community week. And, uh, Peggy, let us know if those sessions are being archived or if it's, you just have to tune in live. Um, on the issue of USB-C. So as I've mentioned on the show, you just talked about that, Jason, in the next generation of the iPad. Apple had had experimented with that with an iPad Pro. Gosh, I don't remember the name, but like it was about three years old. But that was the iPad that I've actually had as my daily carry iPad. I have a laptop too, had, you know, a school laptop as well. But uh, I really loved having USB-C because my single charger took care of my laptop. It took care of my iPad. Now, Shelly, my wife, just got... The, for the first time ever, a brand new iPhone. She she got a 12, and she's always had hand-me-downs. We were figuring, um, and one of the cool things about the 12 is it has this. Um, what's that? What what is the charging called? Where you just set it on the thing, Jason? You remember what that is? Uh, wireless key charging. There you go. So you don't have to plug it in. And and so we were at Target today, and we picked up a um, a wireless charger, which is looks like a little disc. But interestingly, you know, Apple doesn't give you a power brick with that. And so we're having to scramble around the house a little bit because we we have lots of USB-A, you know, charging bricks, but not as many USB-C now. So we're in the middle of this transition to USB-C, both for our, our laptop computers as well as now going to be the next generation of iPads. And I think then that's also coming for phones as well, um, because I think, yeah, the, the charging, like I said, the charging cable itself that came uh, with this with this charging cable, it, it didn't have USB A. It was it was a USB C charger. So anyway, I'm glad to see that transition, but you know, it's going to be a bit messy here in in the in between because we may not have as many of uh, the new devices as we need. But thankfully, you know you've got some cross compatibility. You never charged your laptop with your lightning cable, you know, that came with your iPhone. But now that iPads are moving this direction and I think that we'll, we'll see iPhones do it. There was an article. Didn't we do something last week or the week before about Europe? Because they're, aren't they mandating something about? Yeah. In fact, that's my next article. Okay. Uh, there you go. On June 7th. Great segue okay. that okay. Apple products are set to use common charge report after EU deal. Okay. And there's been a lot of coverage over this over the last couple of weeks, but uh, you know, this started a couple of years back when phones uh, were required uh, to be all on the same standard. And the way Apple got around that was throwing a USB uh, C to a lightning adapter. Um, 
to their um, uh, to their uh, uh, boxes, and that was the way they were kind of compatible with that. Well, that's no longer going to do it, and now uh, the European Union expects Apple to kind of head into this this direction of of being USB C. Now, there's already been uh, I've seen at least ten references. Uh, to expect uh, either the iPhone 14 or the iPhone 15 to go all in on USB-C, uh, which I also agree would be extraordinary. It does mean an awful lot of my good um, iPhone cables uh, will will you know be uh, uh, kind of worthless. In fact, I'm looking at, at one right now that um, I invested in a nice thick um, uh, a braided nylon uh, uh, a lightning cable um, that you know will become worthless when this is the case, but you know, uh, USB-C is very ubiquitous. I have plenty of chargers of those myself. And I think there's some pretty uh, pretty extraordinary advantages to the USB-C standard. It's still not perfect, as we talked about in the past, but obviously Apple will be heading in this direction. The fact that the, the entry-level iPad will likely go in that direction, too, is a, at least a sign to me that we can expect uh, the iPhone, maybe even this year, uh, to be USB-C. And so here's maybe a segue or reference to tech correction in terms of regulation, because what a difference that is to see Europe telling Apple, which I think may still be the, the, the company with the most cash on hand in the whole world. I mean, they were at some point. I don't know if that's changed. Anyway, huge tech company. And for European governments to say, hey, you need to change your standard now to this. Um, I think it sounds like a win for consumers, um, but it, that is a really, really big difference from what we see in the United States. So, um, you know, obviously people have lots of opinions about this, but I think Europe has been ahead of us in the United States with regard to privacy law. I'm not saying that the, the GDPR, the General Directive on Privacy Regulation is perfect and, and without flaw or blemish, uh, but I am com- comfortable saying that we need to have privacy protections written into our laws and not just leave it up to the good graces of technology companies to try and protect us as best they can. Um, and I think this is a, I personally, this is just Wes, uh, see this as a positive from, from, from the consumer standpoint that, that Europe is ex- trying to accelerate the move to USB-C. Um, there have been some really interesting things that have happened throughout time with regard to standards. You know, we have a different television standard for Europe than we do for the United States. Um, we've had, you know, electrical standards. Those of us that have traveled internationally and you've got these different plugs and things like that. And in some cases, you know, that was um, designed incompatibility because somebody thought they were going to be able to benefit in this market by not, you know, being able to just get it from over here and having to produce it, you know, differently. So anyway, I think that um, that's a that's a it's it's a win for consumers. It seems like internationally, um, and so it will be it'll be interesting to see how long it lasts, right? Because USB C um, is a fast technology in terms of transfer, and it's very flexible because you can have power as well as, as data transfer on it. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, what its lifespan is. How many years is it going to be until you know, it's eclipsed. We had, we've had USB-A for a long time. So, you know, if it, if it has a run anywhere comparable to USB-A, that'll, that'll be a long run. Yeah, totally. Okay. Let's see. And then one other kind of, uh, 
actually maybe two more that we can talk about today in regards to, uh, there's three more actually, I want to talk about today in regards to Apple. The first one is, uh, this is an article from a couple weeks back, but 95Mac reported that uh, uh, there is a, some kind of, of evidence that um, uh, Apple might be working on an e-ink screen. And uh, there is a, um, a, a white paper that's going around um, uh, that, that suggests that Apple is testing e-ink screens for uh, uh, inclusion in, in future foldable devices and other tablet-like tablet applications. And um, for me, I really love uh, uh, e-ink as a technology. And um, uh, uh, one of the reasons why is because I've, I've, I've played with uh, an Android tablet that had e-ink on it. Um, and, it, you know, e-ink is not very responsive. If you ever own a Kindle, uh, a black and white Kindle, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it has screens that that have barely any draw. And that's really what brings down your battery. Uh, oftentimes on a tablet or a phone, you can go for days and days and days and days and days and your screen is staying off, even if, if there is applications going on in the background. But if you use your phone, right? By use it, I mean you're looking at your screen, you're looking at your tablet, you're looking at your laptop, especially if you have your screen in the brightest settings, it's really gonna uh, 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 nuke your battery uh, to be able to do that uh, with any sort of appreciable amount of time. So if Apple can come up with novel ways to either keep a partial screen on or a part of your device on, or even have a, a kind of a low power mode that uh, uh, utilizes e-ink, that's something that's extremely, extremely tempting to me. Uh, there have been uh, four or five attempts at e-ink phones. Uh, the problem with all of them was that they were running on Android, but weren't official Android devices, which means they didn't have a Play Store on them. So it was nearly impossible to install the kind of apps that I would need on a daily basis um, to be able to do um, my job. But still, fascinating technology. I was listening to iOS Today, which is a Twit Network podcast, and they, this was the, maybe a week or so back when they were talking about WWDC, um, but they happened to mention the rumor of Apple developing an always-on iPhone screen technology, kind of like the watch, right? I've got a Generation 3 Apple Watch, you know, I tap it, it comes on, but the, I think, I don't know if that happened with 6 or if it was 5, but later generations, you know, they, they don't have to go off, they can just stay on, and so Apple's you know, getting more mileage out of their battery and then just, you know, being able to conserve energy and stretch things a lot further. So that would be really interesting um, to see e-ink come to the iPhone. I know that one of the reasons my wife and I and this summer day was an example because she was out, you know, in the backyard reading on her uh, Kindle is that, man, the iPad just we, we were in the 90s today. It was mid mid to low 90s, but still it gets so hot. Hey, we got Peggy George in the house and she's in Phoenix. I mean, it, it, it can really, really get hot to the point where the iPad or the phone will completely shut down yeah. and you'll just have to go put it in air conditioning and, and plug it in and it'll finally come back to life. But anyway, the Kindle is absolutely wonderful for that with e-ink and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that how that comes that that article talks about a possible foldable iphone yeah. at some point and that the use of e-ink may help with the display of some things that again those might just be persistent and be on all the time uh, and certainly if you're going to have something on all the time e-ink is a compelling technology to be used utilizing versus oled or you know these other screen technologies yep totally 
Okay, a couple other um, articles. Uh, one I'll just give maybe give a quick shout out to. Uh, today's nine to five Mac had some benchmark early benchmark uh, uh, of the uh, M2 chip in comparison to the M1 chip. Um, M1 and M2 are really the 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 consumer level chips because the other thing we know now is that. Um, Apple seems to be uh, uh, setting up the chip as the minimum, and then there are pro and ultra uh, chipsets that are available that are intended to be for power users. Um, so far, my general experience has been that the M1 uh, core chip, which again is supposedly the consumer level chip, is just fine at uh, uh, providing a great speed at a good price. But it looks like about a 10% power, uh, or I'm sorry, 10% performance boost up to a 20% performance boost, looking at, depending on which part of uh, speed you're looking at. There's lots of ways to measure speed on a computer. So I thought that was interesting news. And then the last one that I think is, is actually, it's an example of a, of a problem that Apple has in the way it does things. This is from 9to5Mac on June 14th, and it talks about stage manager and the controversy that is surrounding that. And Stage Manager was something announced at WWDC, the developer conference last week. And it has to do with the opportunity to multitask in uh, uh, the iPad operating system. And the idea behind Stage Manager is that you can, I think it's a, a gesture you can utilize on the screen that opens up a multi-screen interface that allows you to bring other screens in or, or go to two screens at once to essentially manage your windows. And um, if you are familiar with uh, uh, some of the keyboard commands about flipping through windows or, 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 or flipping through applications, it's a very uh, uh, elegant uh, screen that, that allows you to do that. And again, it's called Stage Manager. One of the things that was announced last week was that this would be for uh, new devices only and also ones that have the M1 chip, which is really limited to 2021 iPad Pros, um, actually, I guess late, no, yeah, it would be uh, 2021 iPad Pros and 2022 iPad Airs, including the one that I have right now, um, I, I might uh, note. And it's just super interesting to me that uh, they decided to go in this direction. And there's been a lot of debate about this, but I will also note, and I will mention the reason why it, it, it's it's uh, another kind of wacky knifer project, but um, I happen to know also that the newest version of uh, the Mac operating system released later this year, which I believe is called Ventura, is that right? That is correct, um, yes. Yeah, OS Ten Ventura is coming out later this year, and it drops every... Um, uh, 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 or I'm sorry, it drops every, um, um, do I have that right? It is. Every trash can Mac is dropped from support for that, which means the trash can Macs, which were the Mac Pros from 2013 to 2000, it was either 16 or 17, relatively recent releases, aren't going to be supported by that operating system. And a lot of people aren't surprised from the standpoint that people uh, do believe that, that Apple's going to try to get rid of the need to keep Intel-based operating systems uh, uh, in play for some time uh, or, or, or for, the, for the near future so they can decrease the number of operating systems they're ultimately supporting with updates. But a lot of Mac users are pretty disappointed in this decision, in part because of the complexities um, uh, of, of Apple's long history of supporting devices well after they're purchased. And 
Um, you know, in fact, we've got a, an old iPad Air, or no, I'm sorry, a, a, a MacBook Air at work that's one of our test machines that I believe is a 2014 uh, uh, device. That's an eight-year-old uh, a MacBook that's still receiving updates from modern operating systems. I am on a 27-inch iMac right now that is a late 2012 model, uh, and I'm running Mac OS Catalina. Um you know, this has got, I just pulled up the about this Mac. It's got eight gigs of RAM. It has a 2.9 gigahertz Intel uh, Core i5. Um, it does great for me, you know, but it isn't going to go forever. And I kind of think I may be at the operating system limit here. So this is something that happens with all modern hardware. Uh, you get to a point where the manufacturer does not continue to support it. And so, um, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, as we've talked about on the show, Apple's extremely generous. Um, you know, I don't think Apple's going to pull a, a Microsoft and say, your Safari no longer works, you know, rendering the, com- you know, the computer. I mean, if you couldn't put another browser on it, I mean, you can, but anyway, that, that has not happened, but um, interesting. And, and it also just points to, with schools, we have to be looking at our refresh cycles, you know, and we've got to, you know, build that into our budgets, not only with, um, you know, student one-to-one devices, but, you know, faculty staff devices. And, you know, if you still have labs, but are you, you know, you've got computers in offices, obviously, that uh, staff are using. Um, and you've got, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, still carts and things like that. It just, de- it depends. But, can't hold on to things forever, forever and you've got to be updating them and the companies are going to continue to um, push that kind of a refresh. And at some point you're going to, you're going to reach end of life and you're just going to have to, to bite the bullet, but you probably don't want to wait for that point. Cause that that's going to be a long way in the future. So in some cases though, like this nice 27 inch iMac I'm using, uh, which I bought uh, from our school when they were getting rid of it. Um, it works great. So for, 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 for now, I would of course love to have a large, multiple large screens like Dr. Neifer running a, a new Mac mini. But, um, you know, at this point, this is, this is working good, but I'm certainly aware that that operating system can't be updated anymore. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's possible that there are some security vulnerabilities out there that are, that are not going to be patched. And so you, put yourself as well as your network and others at danger and risk if you end up persisting in, you know, using that old system past its end of life. Totally. Okay. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's it for there. So shall we, let's do the software one before we do uh, tech correction. I think okay, that'll, sure. that'll round out. Uh, so yeah, go for it. Chrome Unboxed uh, has a story about Adobe Photoshop. There is a web-based version of Adobe, uh, Adobe Photoshop that I've read has received some pretty decent reviews. Uh, works well, even on relatively modest browsers. But um, the uh, Chrome Unboxed reported uh, today that Adobe has announced that uh, Photoshop for the web will soon be available for everyone. And my understanding is is that everyone truly means everyone and not just people with Adobe Creative Cloud, Cloud, Creative Cloud subscriptions. And there was a kind of a, a long bit of discussion from Chrome Unboxed, but I've seen some other um, media on this today that Adobe, you know, for a long time had been uh, increasing the price um, on their Creative Cloud's Creative cloud subscriptions, 
um, and including uh, stopping uh, support of versions of the creative uh, suite, uh, in some cases going back to CS2, which would be a, a, a 12, 13, 14-year-old piece of software, but still worked just fine on Windows 7, uh, despite being uh, a dated uh, a piece of software, that uh, they had stopped support for that in part because they were looking to shore up uh, uh, their monthly user base to continue to pro uh, create profits, um, despite the fact that uh, there were a lot of, of uh, industry alternatives. And uh, what I would suppose is that there are other web-based tools that may have ate into Adobe's lunch a little bit. Uh, uh, one of the prominent ones, for example, is a Pixlr, which is a pretty decent uh, uh, image editor online, even though it lacks some of the advanced functionality as it relates to things like... Um, uh, 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 being able to, to manage files locally. It does an okay, not great job of, of, of all those pieces. But I want to mention this because uh, if you are a Chrome user, I think this is really great news. If you're a district that can't really afford Photoshop, I believe the students will need to create accounts. Uh, so that can be a little problematic in itself. But I would assume that, that uh, in the same way that Adobe allows schools to sign up for um, Adobe Express, uh, which was previously a, a set of tools uh, that was under a different name. Uh, the same will be true also of, of Photoshop, that they will try to get uh, get schools set up to where they can just single sign-on from a Google or an Office 365 uh, sign-on system. A couple things come to mind for this. First off, the last time I owned Adobe Photoshop was pre-2006 when I was at the you know, College of Ed at Texas Tech. You know, and I mean, it was a big old box. And I think even educationally, I mean, it was it was hundreds of dollars. Certainly the commercial license was super expensive. Um, but, you know, you get the educational license. But that, 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 this is a real sign of the times of where we've gone in terms of the maturity of the web and also access to software. And I'll say the utility of Chromebooks and just the utility of the browser, right? We have a new art, well, a, a, in the second year of an, of an art and technology class that's a collaboration, uh, this is at my former school now, um, between our, our seventh and eighth grade computer and, and makerspace teacher and then our art teacher called Art and Technology and really innovative, great multidisciplinary projects, but for the most part, all handled without any problems on student Chromebooks. Um, they have a Mac lab and, and they're able to do some things, but you really didn't need to because the, the web has matured so much. And like you said, Pixlr, I think there's a Pixlr X, which is a, a even fancier version. And, you know, it's just, just awesome um, to, to uh, be able to use those tools. And I will throw this in, uh, in part, because I feel so guilty that I, I did such a poor job uh, getting my own <clears throat> links in tonight, but one of the websites that I built at Cassidy as I helped for really the last five years, I think, our senior English teacher with a wonderful class where students wrote children's picture books, and then they used Book Creator, created printable versions, but then also electronic versions that they recorded their voices and all this. Uh, the link I just dropped into the chat, which I'll include, um, is our student authors page, and there's an image editing page, uh, which includes, in addition to Pixlr X, uh, image uh, editor online, uh, remove BG, which is a really nice tool for removing background. Um, there, there's a link to get to Adobe Creative Cloud. Uh, there's also, and this, I don't think we had to do it this year for Book Creator, uh, but iPhones now shoot a native format called HEIC, 
InBook Creator was requiring uh, JPEG. And so anyway, you had to convert those. But almost anything that you want to do today in terms of media and production, you can do a pretty decent job with it using web tools. I'm sure there's going to be videographers that are going to argue with me and say we videos. You know, of course, it's not Final Cut Pro uh, or Adobe Premiere, but excellent, excellent and, and very exciting. And, and again, I think this points to if you are not leveraging that power of the Chromebook and especially the kinds of management that that Google allows in their admin console for students, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it, it's fantastic to be able to do that. Uh, slash end of rant. <laughs> <laughs> Shall okay. we talk about the tech correction? We've gone through 40 minutes, Dr. Neifer. We, we aren't even going to spend half the time talking about the tech, tech correction. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, I'm sure the number of these will just suck us right into some, some discussions. I guess I'll just throw down a, 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 quick, uh, a quick funny one. Uh, apparently, Bill Gates uh, has no interest in NFTs. And as The Verge reported today, um, uh, Bill Gates says that uh, 100% of N- NFT value is based on greater fool theory, which is the simple concept that something is only worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it. In the case of NFTs, if you want to profit off, off of them, uh, if you buy NFTs and want to make a profit off of them, then the best way to do that is to find a bigger fool than you are um, to be able to do that. And, of course, that's a pretty stunning statement. Um, I will admit that I still don't really understand NFTs enough uh, to to uh, either give credence to uh, uh, Mr. Gates's theory, or I know plenty of people that are legit uh, creators that are pretty uh, down on NFTs. Uh, I should say are up on NFTs that uh, you know are in that space and talking about how potentially they're a, a, an incredible part of the future of maintaining rights. Uh, 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 for content creators, but uh, Bill Gates, not a fan. So any thoughts about that, sir? Did you ever watch that video I put as a Geek of the Week in episode 260 by Dan Olson? The line goes up, the problem with NFTs? Yes. Okay. I think, and, and I watched like half of that. It's it's a fairly long video, but um, I, that podcast, I have a, a link to that podcast by Ezra Klein. I can link to that again here if if you go back, uh, our, our latest episode right now that was published was 260. I think that episode and that love, that analysis, it was really, really persuasive. And, and he echoes Gates because what he says is these are people who are saying cryptocurrency is so confusing. It's so complicated. You won't be able to figure it out. But ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful. It's going to solve all our problems and it's going to be this wonderful transformative technology that's going to liberate us from the overlords of, you know, central banks and and central governments and all this. And what he explains is that it's basically a scam because, you know, certainly power users of social media like Elon Musk can simply tweet some things and get some people excited and oh my gosh look how much money that we've made uh and so it's basically ephemeral and the point that he makes about uh nfts which are non-fungible tokens for those of you that may not have tracked with this before and it's a it's supposed to be a digital representation of something else like oh you now own this slam dunk that you know, uh, or whatever, this three-point shot that Larry Bird scored in this particular game. And what he explains, what Olson explains in that podcast and, and also in the video, 
is that, you know, the idea of money, we need something concrete to associate with money. We used to have a gold standard for money. We don't have a gold standard anymore in the United States. It really is just trusting the government of the United States. But with NFTs, you know, people couldn't just, you know, they, they created it so that they'd be able to draw more people into cryptocurrency and to, and into this whole arena. So I, uh, you know, I, I really wasn't on the fence about cryptocurrency. I thought I was definitely thinking that we need to address it in schools, talking about economics, because it seems to be such a big driver. Uh, but I don't think at this point that it's going to be the earth shattering, world changing technology. And uh, I mean, blockchain has good utility and uses, but I don't think it's going to be turning the world upside down. And uh, you certainly don't want to be putting your retirement savings into cryptocurrency. I can, I'll just conclude with that. So. Yeah. Well, and for the record, we've talked about my long history with Dogecoin. And, and although I'm still up uh, on, on Dogecoin long term, I have lost an awful lot of value in, say, the last, uh, well, two weeks and then, you know, the previous year and a half. So luckily, I did not put my retirement savings into there. It was really some um uh, uh uh resources i did not need at the time and um good because it it went up and then it went down so and bill gates is a pretty smart person so but of course you know he recommended that people get vaccinated and a lot of folks you know thought he was foolish for saying yeah that. totally people are not going to all agree but it's uh it when you and somebody like that says something like that it it's worth worth paying attention to it Okay, um, there's another article that I actually had in last week that I want to spend a little more time on, and, and, and we'll see where, where it goes from here. But uh, this is from uh, uh, Time Magazine, its recent 2030 uh, episode, or I'm sorry, um, episode, um, their 2030 uh, special uh, magazine edition that uh, has articles kind of looking into the future. And it, it, it talked about this notion that, uh, well, let me start off with the story it starts off with, that uh, in 1983, a Croatian commercial airliner wandered into Soviet airspace uh, uh, where it was shot and 269 people were killed. And I didn't know this story, but to prevent uh, this tragedy from happening again, President Ronald Reagan uh, took a bold step and ordered the U.S. military to make the new, then new global positioning system available to everyone, um, which would allow everyone to know precisely where they're located on Earth and improve things like navigation in airplanes. And uh, ever since then, uh, even though the uh, global positioning system is really maintained by the military for military purposes, uh, uh, in other words, uh, I would imagine they could shut off access if they wanted to. And I imagine there's also a lot of fail-safes built into that because of how many systems rely on GPS technology. But here we are in, in, in 2022, and GPS is used for everything um, from locating your luggage um, to knowing where your, your, your cell phone uh, is at uh, uh, from your computer, right? You can ask your cell phone to tell you its location so you can uh, find a lost device. And the premise of this article um, is the notion that uh, all of these companies that own mountains of data um, uh, on us, and they, they talk about things like Google, uh, Tesla, um, uh, even more mundane apps that, that are based on sales to people collect an awful lot of data on you. And that data is essentially owned and proprietary. And um, uh, what the, these authors argue is, and to quote from the article, 
like with other common goods, such as security, justice, basic education, infrastructure, government actions needed. When it comes to access data, government action is either untested or radical. We have made data accessible when it was held by powerful corporation. And they talk about in the 1950s when they forced AT&T um, to uh, uh, um, uh, open up its patents to other U.S. businesses because uh, AT&T was stymieing trade. Bell, Bell Labs, that was an incredible impact on innovation, the development of the web, and so many technologies. Yep. Huge. So, um, so the idea there is that this data needs to be uh, uh, available for, for human purposes uh, to help develop uh, tools that help people and not just keep it for commercial purposes. So your thoughts, Dr. Fryer? Uh, first off, Peggy's saying behind a paywall, I think if you open an incognito window, Peggy, uh, you won't have a cookie set, and I think you'll be able to um, to read the article. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, this reminds me a little bit of zero-day exploits and the ways in which governments as well as individuals and private companies um, hoard that information and, and don't just turn that in to be fixed because of value that they have. Um, I mean, this is the heart of the tech correction and surveillance capitalism, right? right. Surveillance capitalism functions because – we don't really have any legislation or, or constitutional amendments or anything that limit the ability to for individuals and companies or and or governments uh, to collect vast tropes of information about us and do almost anything that they want with that data. And I think we've talked about on the show, I've read some authors that have said it's not a great analogy to say, you know, data is the new oil. That's that's imperfect in, in, in many ways, but it certainly undergirds much of the modern internet and the modern web. And there are some really, um, you know, there's some really negative aspects to, to, to that kind of a model. There's, there's positives as well. So does the article suggest, or do you, Dr. Neifer, have a solution or a path forward um, where we can have big data, not, or big tech, not, not hoard that data to a degree. And this, this could be changed is, is privacy regulation a, a way forward, empowering individuals perhaps to have the ability to take their data and, and have portability, you know, being able to move it places or any, any thoughts on a path forward from where we are with this? Well, I do think regulations are part of this, and that is uh, certainly what uh, the, the authors of the article are arguing, uh, citing several attempts in the past to regulate for the purposes of, of, of kind of the, the common human good, right? Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, you know, part of this is, is that we need to find a way to fund the Internet without personal data being the primary currency. Um, and, you know, that obviously is, is, is very problematic because a lot of the free web, you know, trades in, in, in private data in order to support targeted advertising. So obviously that, that's a bit problematic, but, um, you know, I, I think that, that absolutely needs to be the way we, we, we think about this because we, I just don't think we have any other shot here that, um, you know, a good example is, is, is traffic data. Um, you know, I would guess that if you dig deep down into the Apple Maps, the Google Maps, and the Waze uh, 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 terms of service, that they're collecting an awful lot of data on you to make that happen, um, and um, uh, 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 not sharing that data with anyone except to sell advertising or to otherwise create uh, advertising models for you. And municipalities, cities, and towns uh, are are doing this too. 
Um, I noticed this the most when we go north into Edmond, which is one of our affluent suburbs. You know, we, we have them ringing Oklahoma City. And the um, we have a lot of turnpikes. I don't know if you guys have those in Montana, but we have a lot of turnpikes in, in Oklahoma as well as Texas. I say a lot. I mean, just I end up having to use them quite a bit. Um, the Pike Pass is what we call it. Uh, Texas has a, a the tech, I think the Texas toll t- tag. <clears throat> but but almost every not every a lot of people have these now and so when but when you're it's not just when you're on the um, on the turnpike uh, or on the interstate um, our school uses those now to be able to allow faculty and staff and students and parents to be able to come in and and recognize their vehicle but I've been told that there's a ton of data collection that's happening in cities and towns not just from cameras but from these uh, I guess passive receivers that are able to pick up your your tag, your your turnpike tag uh, signal, um, and then this data is you know fed into to dashboards and stuff. It really it's kind of incredible um, everything that's being collected and the ways that these lines are drawn. And one of the things that makes me think of as an as an academic with a terminal degree is you know universities have always been and continue to be very protective of data. We have things called IRBs, which are institutional review boards that say when you're going to do a study, then you've got to submit your process and make sure you're protecting individual privacy and confidentiality, yada, yada, yada. There are no IRB review processes for, you know, a new surveillance system that I know of that are, that's being put in or a new turnpike, um, you know, metering system. We used to have actual toll booths in Oklahoma and those now have gone the way of Texas, which is it's all completely passive. It either gets your little, um, it's not RFID, but it's whatever your tag is or the, the, um, AI, uh, photographic recognition takes a picture of your license plate and then connects your license plate to your name and then sends, sends you a bill. So I it just, it strikes me how important these issues are. Where are we talking about these in school? Where are we talking about this in the curriculum? I mean, are we, is it even in a civics curriculum or a U.S. government curriculum? It's not in an English curriculum. Math doesn't have it. Like, I think that this entire, hopefully we're talking about it in a media literacy curriculum. And when we have a quote computer class or computer applications, but these are absolutely essential topics to discuss and understand because it does undergird the entire modern economy of the web. And it has so many different impacts, you know, politically, uh, culturally, socially. So to me, it just screams, where are we helping get our heads around this, you know, formally as, as educators, as citizens, and then, you know, for the students that are in our classrooms, because this is really important stuff. And I don't think it's in the curriculum formally. Yeah, I uh, both agree that it should be and then agree it's not at, really at all. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, how, about gonna, the tic- how about the TikTok algorithm one? You want to do yeah, that? that's actually the one I, I was going to look at. So this one is is a, a, a kind of breaking news that there have been, this was covered on several outlets today, but um, there's apparently been a release of a um, uh, of some internal information to suggest that Facebook is is looking at um, 
kind of reconfiguring the way they do things, and they want the apps feed to look more like TikTok's of feed. And I, you know, there, there is a lot of debate inside the article itself about exactly what that might look like. It's not just the concept of replacing, um, uh, uh, the content with shorts, which is, uh, uh, what YouTube calls it or, uh, reels, which is called Instagram uh, calls it to try to be competitive with the TikTok model. Um, in fact, I did see an article today, I didn't put it in that about 1.3 billion uh, YouTube users use shorts now. I can't imagine that it's universally uh, a, 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 a platform accessed by those users. I would imagine I'm a shorts user under that definition, and I've maybe seen four or five of them. I still go back to TikTok for TikTok itself. But I think this is a sign that that, that Facebook is concerned that they're losing the uh, logarithm race uh, to other platforms. And the reason why this is so interesting to me is because it, it, if this is true, it feels like Facebook doesn't get that there's some danger in, uh, uh, th- these particular, uh, uh, software manifestations of being as effective as they are because they, they help, uh, uh that they, they, in essence, radicalize you, right? By keeping delivering things that things you want to see next as part of a progression, this is what got Facebook into trouble in the last five or six years in the first place. So, uh, Wes, I know that you're relatively new to TikTok and that you are a TikTok creator, as a matter of fact. Um, but any thoughts on, on, on bringing this technology to Facebook? Oh, my gosh. I, it's just, at one level, it's just depressing to see how uh, uh, it appears to be how unregulatable this is. I don't know. I I haven't tracked to see if we're going to pass any kind of gun control legislation in the country after Uvalde. Um, we have such gridlock in the country, but it it just really uh, it, it it really seems like we are frozen in so many different things. And and when it comes to technology and these kind of things and how quickly it changes, imagining that our congressional folks are going to have enough consensus um, to pass some kind of legislation that, that can address, you know, something like this. I, I just don't, don't think they're, they're going to. So yeah, Facebook's going to continue to chase. Um, if they can't buy them, they're going to continue to, to steal and copy, you know, what it, whatever appears to succeed with the young generation. Cause that's part of what's happening, right? Because eventually if Facebook is, they did buy Instagram, but if they, if they're not able to buy some of these other platforms and they can't become the cool platform for the young people, then, you know, the Facebook user base is going to age out. Uh, we're going to all die off at some point. So um, I'm glad that this was leaked. Um, I think this points to the need for some transparency, some algorithmic transparency. Um, and I'll give a shout out to Ethan Zuckerman, who has a great podcast on fixing the Internet. And um, I think I've, I've included him in, in a Geek of the Week before. But there's just there's so much o- opacity. There's so much that we can't really see and, and look into. And I think when it comes to this, well, algorithmic bias, did you, did you see the, the vid, that YouTube uh, special on algorithmic bias? Uh, we mentioned it a few weeks ago. I need to yeah, put that I on. I watched my... the first part of it. I think it's still in my queue to review. Okay. I have not seen it yet. And I need to, we've, we've seen Top Gun twice, of course, but I haven't, 
I haven't seen that one yet on Netflix. And I, I, I want to do that actually with, with Shelly and, and probably with both of our girls too, because it's, 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 it's important. So how are we going to be able to, you know, even know the landscape of what's happening with these algorithms, we're going to need to, to probably push for some greater transparency, if not for everyone, then, you know, for certain groups that are going to be able to go in and audit and take a look at things, just like you have groups audit, you know, Hey, how are you doing your billboard advertising? Hey, how are you doing your, your classified advertising? Are you, you know, illegally, you know, excluding certain groups or, or, you know, not allowing certain groups to, uh, to advertise or whatever you've got, you've got outside auditors that come in and take a look at things and there's some regulation there. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not surprising. Um, sadly, I think it's also a little bit depressing. So. Yep, absolutely. Well, Wes, um, I see that we are at the top of the hour. So shall we hit the geeks of the week? Let's do it. Uh, mine is a story. I called it the long tail moment. And so it's a Twitter thread. And if you're not familiar with the concept of the long tail, that's a great thing to just uh, look up in Wikipedia. Uh, basically, it means that people with a really uh, niche interest, can, I mean, one interpretation of it, folks with a niche interest can connect uh, with each other. And, um, you know, sometimes that, that means folks get radicalized to, to join fringe political groups. Other times, it means people who love oral history and digital storytelling in World War II, you know, get to connect. And so... Um, I put a four hour video of a World War II veteran who is still alive um, in our former church. Um, I had interviewed him in, in 2011, and I think it only had about 46 views, um, but it was found by um, a gentleman who uh, is named Rishi Sharma, and he's a Canadian, and he spent the past five years interviewing World War II veterans around the world, and he had actually interviewed Oren Lee Peters at one time. He was trying to connect with him again. Um, but anyway, I uh, made a little thread sharing that story and sh uh, sharing what he, um, uh, well, a, a, C a CBC News um, article uh, about his work and then also a link to his project, which is called Remember World War II. And so he is trying to get as many of the still living World War II veterans, which there are not that many uh, still alive and not that many, you know, able to do interviews but as many of them to share their uh, their perspectives and their stories. And so I just thought that was super cool. And amidst the tech correction and the depressing stuff that we talk about or whatever, uh, it's wonderful to preserve the voices and perspectives of folks that uh, are in the older generation and certainly people who have experienced some extraordinary things uh, to be inspired by them and, and to, to learn from them uh, and to preserve their their voices and perspectives. Okay, and I would like to share an opportunity through my friends at the Northwest Council of Computer Education. They've teamed up with the Library of Congress to offer uh, a, a wonderful series of professional development events this summer around the so-called Crossroads of History project, which is how to use uh, primary sources to develop wonderful and meaningful lessons based on uh, issues like social justice and civil rights. And it's a free professional development. NCCE is running the western half of the United States, which, uh, to give you some sense of what they define as West, would include North and South Dakota and Texas, but not Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska. Uh, that would be uh, uh, covered by another region. But if you're a Western United States educator, uh, go to ncce.org slash professional learning and learn more about the uh, uh, Crossroads of History Project from Northwest Council of Community Education and the Library of Congress. 
Sounds awesome. Well, Jason, when you're not here on a Wednesday night, where can people find you? Hey, best place to follow me, uh, to find me, follow me, that works too, Twitter. Uh, Tech Savvy Teach is where I'd like to make comments. And yourself, sir. You can go to WFryer on Twitter, and you can also just link to westfryer.com slash after, where I have a plethora of links to include my sometimes uh, active Mastodon account, which I bet we can count on maybe two hands how many Mastodon listeners we have. But hey, if you're on Mastodon or Twitter or anything, if you're just listening to this, we would love to hear from you, hear feedback, uh, reach out to us, let us know, join us live if you can. Remember that you can access all of the show notes when the slacker post-production character who's part of this team uh, gets his act together. Usually that happens a, a day or two after our show. It's all on edtechsr.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR, subscribe to our YouTube channel and our Facebook page where you do not have to wait because these things are immediately archived uh, without Dr. Neifer or I so much as raising a finger after we end the show. It just happens with text-to-speech audio transcription, which isn't that a little bit scary. But this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We want to thank you for joining us. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us live. It is always a joy, uh, and we encourage everybody out there to stay savvy, stay safe, and join us next time for the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night.